And now, O Lord, as we come to Your Word, we remember that Your Word is inerrant. We remember that Your Word is infallible. We remember that Your Word never returns void. And so we ask, O Lord, that You would feed us our daily bread. Feed us, O Lord. Nourish our souls with Your Word in order that the needs that we have may be met. We pray that by the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, You would give us understanding, and more than understanding, conviction. Conviction to believe. Conviction to act on what Your Word says. Conviction, O Lord, to withstand various trials in this life. We thank You that You are causing all things to work together for the good of those who love You and are called according to Your purposes. And we pray, O Lord, that You would use Your Word now to strengthen us in order that we may exalt Christ in our daily lives. In His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 15. This is actually a sermon that I wrote three weeks ago. (laughs) We were going to be studying this passage three weeks ago when um, all of a sudden we had to cancel service for a week. And uh, yeah, broken heater. It's been a crazy month, but here we are back in John finally. Uh, and it's been, it's been great to review this passage and, and uh, to get back into it. This is just such a, a rich, rich uh, book. So much theology in the chapters that we're now in the midst of. But we're coming now to the end of Jesus' ministry. And He's saying some really important things to His disciples. You would expect that His last instructions, His final instructions would be instructions that are just coming straight from His heart. These are instructions and and words that are meant to strengthen them, uh, words and and instructions that are meant to comfort them and guide them through some difficult times that are coming. And one of the things that He says in this passage that we come to today is that His people are His friends. His people are His friends. That's, how, that's the word that He uses to describe them. Which is just mind-blowing if you try to wrap your mind around it. But having friends, we all understand that having friends is an important part of life. Scripture attests to this. That it's always been an important part of the human experience. God didn't create people to live in a vacuum by themselves. He didn't create people to live alone and to be separated from one another. And when Adam was alone in the garden before God created Eve from Adam's rib, you might remember that God declared that it is not good for the man to be alone. Now keep in mind... Keep in mind that as God had created everything else over uh, over the six days of creation, He declared everything to be good. As you go through Genesis one, everything is good, good, good. Then man is created, and everything is very good. But when he when he finished his work of creation and saw Adam, he declared that it was not good for Adam to be alone. We are made to have relationships. We are made to have friends. Having friends is an important part of life. Now the decline of friendship 
is actually one of the tragic, tragic consequences of the lockdowns and mandates that we've experienced over the past year and eight months. And this is stuff that's all been documented. There are studies that reveal that friendships have been lost and have, uh, have lost significance uh, over the past year and eight months. According to an article published in May of this year by the Survey Center on American Life, they said, quote, Americans report having fewer close friendships than they once did, talking to their friends less often, and relying less on their friends for personal support, end quote. The article goes on to report that, quote, roughly half of Americans report having lost touch with at least one friend during the pandemic, end quote. And so one of the, one of the downsides, one of the tragic consequences of these lockdowns has been the loss of friendships. How important is friendship? Uh, an important discovery a few years ago from a major study of adult lives found that those with close, long-term friends fared better than those who were less social and who had fewer friends. Those who had more friends and were more social had better health. They had uh, more income. Their, their careers were more successful, among many, many other things. I read another interesting article about how so many people have tried to replace real in-person friendships with online friendships, which is what we've all been encouraged to do during the pandemic, right? Uh, you know, get on social media and reach out to friends there. Facebook has commercials where people are talking through their new messaging uh, thing where you can video with one another, as if that's the same. Churches were told, just meet on Zoom as if it's the same. It's not. The author of this article noted the tragedy of this trend, writing that online relationships, quote, can actually be a way of not engaging deeply with others. In the guise of generating friendships, the internet can ironically serve to keep people apart. Social media can never replace the authenticity and intimacy of face-to-face -face interactions, end quote. Friends, we are designed to have friends. We are meant to have friendships. We do well when we have friends. We flourish when we have friends. We don't do so well when we don't have friends. We don't do so well when our friendships are falling apart. Building relationships, building friendships takes time and is an important part of life. Being a Christian is often described as being in a relationship with Jesus. Have you guys ever heard that term? Uh, being used or being being in a in a relationship with Jesus. Personally, I've never really liked that language. A because uh, it's not language that you find in Scripture. Nobody ever says, "Hey, you just need to have a relationship with Jesus." And I think that's because the second reason I don't like that phrase is because B everyone is already in a relationship with Jesus. You've either got the same relationship to him as a guilty criminal has to a righteous judge, or you're his friend. You've got a relationship one way or the other with Jesus. Scripture leaves no room for any middle ground here. You're either standing before him as a convicted criminal before a judge, or you're standing before him as a friend. So in the text that we come to today as we continue our study of John's Gospel, we'll see Jesus refer to his disciples as friends. But what makes them his friends? And what should it look like? What should our lives look like if we are friends of Jesus? 
And that brings us to the point of this passage. The point of this passage that we'll be looking at today is that Jesus' friends love one another, walk in obedience to Him, understand His teachings, and are chosen for the purpose of bearing good fruit. Let me say that again. The point of the passage that we're looking at today is that Jesus' friends love one another, they walk in obedience to Jesus, they understand His teachings, and they are chosen for the purpose of bearing good fruit in their lives. So Jesus has been talking to His disciples about the importance of abiding in Him. If you remember back in verse 1 of chapter 15, He says, I am the true vine and My Father is the vine dresser. Verse 2, Every branch in Me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the Word that I have spoken to you. Here it is. Abide in Me. Abide in Me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in Me. And from there, that's where this whole thing is flowing from. Jesus is continuing to talk about this. He's the vine. His people are the branches. By virtue of their union with Him, all of His people will bear good fruit. So having discussed the sweet blessings that belong to those who abide in Him. In the previous passage, uh, Jesus now continues to talk about the things that will characterize the lives of the branches. That is, that will characterize the lives of His people. Those who believe in Him. So that is to say, that this is at least part of the good fruit that we will bear as we abide in Christ. So we'll start by looking at verses 12-14. to where Jesus says this. He says, This is My commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are My friends, if you do what I command you. And it is just mind-blowing. It is amazing to consider that given His infinite superiority to us in terms of His very being. His majesty, His holiness, His wisdom, His beauty, His ways, His power, that He would say to us, you are My friends. You are My friends. Who's He talking to there? To whom does He give the title friend? Is He talking to the Pharisees? No. Is he talking to the civil authorities who will be coming to arrest him shortly? Again, no. Is he talking to the mobs of people who are going to be screaming for his crucifixion the next day? No. Is he talking to any unbelievers? No. No, he's only talking to his followers. This is a term that he, res- that he reserves for those who believe in Him and believe in Him savingly. If you think that you're His friend because you're a good person, you've got another thing coming. Or if you think that you're His friend because you, you think He's cool, or you think He's neat, or you think He's a pretty good teacher, or if you think you're His friend because maybe at one point in your life you said some prayer and then walked away and it never changed your life. No, you're sadly mistaken. Those things don't make you a friend of Jesus. His enemies have done all of those things. 
unbelievers have done all of those things. Hell will be filled with people who thought they were good, or who thought that Jesus was a good teacher, or maybe they, they, they looked up to Him and admired Him, or, or maybe they said some prayer in which they invited Him into their heart. Again, language that's never used in Scripture. But not a single one of those things will keep you out of hell. So the question then becomes, what will keep you out of hell? And this is where the conversation about what friendship with Christ entails begins. It starts by realizing and confessing the fact that you are a sinner who does not deserve to be His friend. That in fact, all you deserve, based on what you have done, is to be His enemy. All you deserve is death. We must confess our guilt if we are to receive grace. We must confess our guilt, our sinfulness, if we are to receive pardon. If God were to judge you right now, just based on your own merit, all He could do is condemn you to suffer in hell forever. And the same is true of me. And the same is true of everybody else. If we are judged only by our merit, by what we have done, all God being holy and just and righteous, all He can do is send us to hell. Because none of us have lived up to His holy and righteous standards. Now, if you can't bring yourself to accept that, if you can't bring yourself to believe that, then you are not ready to be friends with Jesus. And you are not a friend of Jesus. But if you will accept that truth, that you are a sinner, that you have fallen short of God's holy and righteous standards, then look to the cross. Look to the cross where the merit of Christ is demonstrated. Where the love of Christ is demonstrated. Where Jesus bore the wrath of God that you deserved. He died, He was buried, but He rose again on the third day. Do you believe that? That's an important question. Do you believe that? Because if your answer is yes, then what Jesus says in our passage should be of great interest to you. And I would just simply encourage you to consider these characteristics that we'll be looking at of those who truly believe in Jesus. And I would encourage you to seek to grow in them by abiding in Christ. And if you are not to the point where you can believe this, if you are not to the point where you can believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again on the third day, and that His death is sufficient for your sins, I would just pray for you to consider your need for somebody's merit, for perfect merit to be imputed to you, to be transferred to you. How would you receive it? There's only one way. And that is, that is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But if you believe these things, think about these characteristics that we're looking at today. Grow in these characteristics that we're looking at today. Not so that you will be saved, but because by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you have been saved. You are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, a new creation in Christ Jesus. A new creation with new desires, new habits, new characteristics. Now, of course, 
here in John chapter 15, verse 12 serves as kind of a repetition of the same thing that Jesus said back in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You think after three repetitions they would get the point. But Jesus repeats it again here in chapter 15. The fact that Jesus repeats it here in chapter 15 serves as an indication that it's something that we should be taking pretty seriously. When there's something that isn't very important, you can say it once, and if they remember it, great. If not, who cares, right? But if it's important, what do you do? You drill it home. It's the same that you do with your kids. If you don't want them to run out in the street, do you just tell them once flippantly, hey, you know, stay out of the street, and that's it? Or do you tell them repeatedly? You tell them repeatedly. So this is something that we should take seriously. It's important to Jesus, not only that we love Him, that's easy to do, right? But not only that, but that we also love one another. And not only that we love one another, but that we love one another as... He has loved us. He says it not only once in this passage, but twice. He says it in verse 12, and He says it again in verse 17, which serve as kind of the bookends of this passage. This I command you, that you love one another. Now in the previous passage, Jesus had told us what kind of love it is that He loves us with. If you remember what He said, look look back at verse 9. He said, just as the Father has loved Me, I have also loved you. So if you have an idea of what the Father's love for the Son looks like, that's the kind of love that the Son, that Jesus, has for His people. It's crazy to think about that. I don't know about you, but but I like that Jesus said that. I'm really comfortable with the fact that Jesus said that He loves me that way. It blows my mind, but... But I'll take it. I'm I'm very happy that he said that. I love reading those words. I loved preaching those words. I'm so glad that he said those words. But I don't have the same warm feelings for what he says here in verse 12. I'm commanded not only to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, but to love them as he has loved me, which is as the Father has loved the Son. I mean... Try to wrap your mind around how impossible that truly is. And so what this does is it challenges me. It challenges all of us. It it, it maybe even intimidates me to think that I'm supposed to be loving you the way that the Father has loved the Son, which is the way that the Son has loved me. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I don't want to love you. uh, and, And I'm not saying that I don't already love you. But to love you as my brothers and sisters in Christ with the same kind of love that Jesus has loved me with, man, that, that stretches me. It challenges me because I recognize the greatness of His love. And I also recognize the frailty of my own love for others. If Jesus hadn't also promised earlier that He was going to be sending another Helper, another Advocate in the Holy Spirit who would dwell within God's people, enabling them to do what God has commanded, if if Jesus hadn't told us about that, this would all seem 
hopeless to me. The odds of me loving you the way that the Father has loved the Son and the way that the Son has loved me seems impossible without the Holy Spirit helping me, enabling me, causing me to have that kind of love for my brothers and sisters in Christ. God's desire for us, indeed His plan for us, His purpose for us, is that we would not only be justified, that is that we we would not only be forgiven, but that we would be sanctified. What that means is that we would grow in our holiness. Justification is when the penalty of sin is dealt with. uh, Sanctification is when the power of sin is dealt with. That is, God's desire for us is that we would not only be a people who are forgiven, but that we would increasingly become more and more like Jesus. The longer you are a Christian, the greater your understanding should be of the incredible heights and the incredible depths of Christ's love for you. And what Jesus is saying here is that one of the ways that we are to grow in His likeness is in our willingness and in our ability to love others for whom Christ died. Richard Phillips puts it this way. He writes, quote, Having been loved by Him with so great a redeeming love, we are to love others in a way that reflects His matchless grace. End quote. Does that challenge you? It should. It should. But, but why does it challenge us? Think of it this way. What would hinder us from loving the way that we're instructed to love? From loving others as Christ has loved us? <clears throat> and the answer is the flesh. The flesh would hinder us. But then we must ask ourselves, can the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, can the Holy Spirit overcome the hindrances of the flesh? Well, the Holy Spirit is God, and we wouldn't want to think that anything is impossible for God, would we? No? So yes, of course, the Spirit can overcome the hindrances of the flesh. We can love our brothers and sisters in Christ in this way, because the Holy Spirit lives within us, dwells within us, and enables us to walk according to His commands. Now notice the term, one another. Who's to be the object of this love that we are supposed to have? One another. Jesus doesn't say that we're to love everyone the way that He loves His people. No, there's a love that we are to have for Christians. There's a love that we are to have for our brothers and sisters in Christ that is thicker than even blood. You are closer to a fellow Christian than you are to any blood relative who is an unbeliever. Now, now there's nothing that could cause you to decrease or to lessen in your love or in your devotion to preserving the honor of a blood relative. How much more should that be the case with a brother or sister in Christ? We are to love fellow Christians the way that Jesus has loved us individually. If you're a friend of Jesus, this is a characteristic that should be seen in your life. This should characterize you as you abide in Christ 
this is one fruit that should be born in your life. When we think about how amazing God's grace is and how marvelous and wonderful His love for us is, we discover that God doesn't just view us as lowly servants. Rather, so great is His love for us that Jesus would even refer to His people, those whom He died for, as friends. As friends. And this is one of many aspects of His love for us that should put us into a state of awe when we even try to consider it. I don't think we can fully wrap our minds around it. But think of it this way. How many of you are, import, uh, are friends with somebody who's really important? Say the, the President of the United States. How many of you are, are personal friends of the President of the United States? Or any, any President, whether you, it's the current President or any former President. How many of you have him on speed dial? Or how many of you are on speed dial for a former President? And the answer is probably none of you, right? How many of you have friends who come from a long, long line of rich royal heritage? I mean, those types of people are typically beyond our ability to connect with and to be friends with. They're part of this upper echelon of social life, and let's be honest, we're we're just kind of common. The socially elite and the the common man, uh, there's a disconnect there. What foundation is there for a friendship? And yet, when you consider how improbable, not impossible, but incredibly improbable it is that somebody like us would be friends, personal friends with the president or a former president or some world leader, consider how much crazier it is that the most high God, the God who created all things, would call us friends. The most powerful and and the most educated people in the world are nothing in comparison to God. They don't call us friends, but He does. They're His footstool. Those people would probably not call you a friend, nor would they probably desire our fellowship or companionship, but this is what makes it earth-shattering to realize that the God who created everything does call you friend and does desire to have regular fellowship and communion with you. It's not uncommon, by the way, to hear people say things like, you know, there are two people who are willing to die for you, Jesus and the American soldier. Uh, We just heard that this past week. I saw memes saying that this past week. And while I have great respect and thankfulness for our country's military I don't think it's fair to anybody in the military to put them on the same pedestal as we would put Jesus on. To to compare the two and to put the two in the same category really does a disservice to both of them. Now, first of all, unlike the American soldier who goes off to war uh, hoping not to die in the process, Jesus did not come and take on flesh hoping not to die. He did not come to fight. He came to die. The soldier hopes to avoid death, but death was the purpose of Christ taking on flesh. His perfect, sinless life was the cost of redemption for His people. He had to take their sins upon Himself 
in order to pay the cost of their sins before God. When earthly heroes die in acts of, uh, of, of bravery, you know, saving somebody else's life, it's almost always in the midst of taking a very calculated risk. They don't enter into acts of uh, heroism with the sole purposeful intention of dying. But Jesus did. Secondly, Jesus, and only Jesus, didn't have to die. Jesus didn't have to die. Nothing made Him obligated in any way, shape, or form to die, to experience death, because He never sinned. He could have simply taken on flesh. He could have lived a perfect life. And then He could have simply ascended into heaven without ever having experienced death. In that sense, Jesus is completely unique. Nobody else is like Him. Everybody else has fallen short. Everybody else has sinned. And the wage of sin is death. None of us have a choice in the matter, including the highest earthly heroes. But if the soldier doesn't die on the battlefield, he will eventually die after returning home at some point. Third, when an American soldier dies for us, he's not dying for his enemies, but for his country and for his fellow citizens. Jesus, on the other hand, died for us when we were not citizens of his kingdom. Paul says this, he says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were his enemies by nature, when Christ died for us. He died in order to make us citizens of His kingdom. He died in order to bring us into His kingdom. Now as long as you don't see that Jesus died for you while you were still a sinner, while you were still an enemy of God, if if you are still not able to see that, you are just going to miss, completely miss, how amazing and how wonderful the Savior's love for His friends truly is. The fourth reason that the death of Jesus is in a category of its own is because His death and His death alone was spiritually redemptive. That is, only Jesus could save anyone else spiritually. Only Jesus could save others from the wrath of God through His death because only Jesus lived a perfectly sinless, holy life that could be offered in the place of fallen sinners. Now we need to see how verses 12 and 13 here in John chapter 15 tie together. Verses 12 and 13. Jesus says, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. See, in verse 12, Jesus told us that his people are to love one another as he has loved us. And then in verse 13, he tells us how great his love for us is. That's the standard right there. That's the kind of love that we should have for one another right there. It should be selfless. It should be sacrificial. That's the kind of love that we must aim for, that we must strive to have for one another. If you are a friend of Jesus, this is a characteristic that should be born in your life. We should see this 
quality in your life. As you abide in Him, this fruit should spring up in your life. Now when I say that this should characterize your life, I bring verse 14 into the mix of things. Jesus says, you are my friends if, if you do what I command you. And He says this right after giving us a command. But this connects the first characteristic, love for all who believe in Christ, with the second characteristic of Jesus' friends, which is walking in obedience to Him. Now once again, and I don't think I can emphasize this enough, I think I have to underscore this, we are not saved by our obedience. We're saved by Christ's obedience. We're not saved by our obedience. Rather, we're obedient because we're saved. We aren't obedient in order to receive God's love as if His love is our reward for obedience. That's a love that's conditional. No, we're obedient because we already have received God's love, which is unconditional. So what this second characteristic, walking in obedience, what this tells us is that when Jesus refers to us as His friends, it doesn't release us from the obligation of serving and obeying Him. You know, being his, being his friend doesn't mean that we're on equal footing with Him. So, you know, if you remember the old t-shirt, Jesus is my homie. Uh, homies are on equal standing with one another. That's how earthly friendships work. Two people see each other as basically being equal to each other, on equal footing with one another. But with Jesus, it cannot be like that. Jesus is not your homie. <laughs> Jesus, if He is your friend, is still your master, which we'll get to before we're done with this passage today. Friendship with Jesus involves an element of submission on our part. Not on His to us, but on our part to Him. Again, not in order to be His friend, but because by grace through faith in Christ alone, we already are. There was a time in Jesus' ministry that you might recall in which He was preaching to the masses and if you remember, his parents, uh, his brothers, uh, they all thought he was crazy. They thought he was nuts. So at one point, he's preaching to the masses, and his mother and some of his brothers come looking for him. And so his disciples say to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Now, do you remember how Jesus responded to that? This is a very interesting response. He didn't say, Okay, tell them I'll be right there, which is probably what I would have said. No, instead he said, who are my mother and my brothers? Now, he wasn't actually expecting an answer. I'm sure he wouldn't have gotten one anyway. Everybody was probably like, what is he talking about? Who are my mother and my brothers? But Jesus continues, Mark tells us, by saying this. Looking about at those who were sitting around him, he said, behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. That's the passage that we find in, Luke, uh, or in Mark chapter 3, uh, verses 34 and 35. Those who are truly friends of Jesus are characterized by a love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are characterized by obedience, by doing the will of the Father, just as Jesus said in responding to the fact that His mother and brothers had come. Those who did the will of God were His mother and brothers. Are these characteristics, loving one another in obedience to 
His commands. Are these characteristics found in your life? They should be. If you are abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ produces these qualities in us. Now we've seen this theme of obedience just repeated over and over through the course of of, uh, chapters 14 and 15. Why do you think that it's been repeated so frequently throughout these two chapters? Consider the context. These are final words that Jesus is giving to His disciples. Jesus was a master teacher. He knew what He was doing and He knew that repetition is a means of really driving a point home. Repetition is a means of really driving a point home. Repetition, you get it. But this is why, friends, this, this, this whole emphasis on obedience, it's important to Jesus, which is exactly why the whole cheap grace movement of the 70s and 80s was so harmful. We're still seeing effects from it in the church today. We're still seeing antinomianism in the church today. Because if we send the message that obedience isn't important, we end up depriving people of true assurance. Now, we don't want to emphasize obedience to the point where we say your your salvation depends on your obedience because that's a false gospel. But we don't want to go to the other end of the spectrum either where we say, oh, obedience doesn't matter because obviously it mattered to Jesus. See, there's a balance to be found between legalism and lawlessness grace should prevent us from being legalists and jesus's repeated emphasis on obedience should prevent us from being lawless and not only jesus's emphasis but it's an emphasis that we find throughout scripture throughout the new testament see the legalist and the lawless one have something in common neither one of them understands the entire concept of grace correctly Both the legalist and the lawless one exalt themselves. Neither is in a position of humility. The legalist says, my personal convictions should be everybody's personal convictions. And the lawless one says, nobody has the authority to tell me what to do, including God. But let's get this much straight. The legalist isn't trying to walk in obedience to God's commands. If they did, they would not be a legalist. The the desire to obey Christ, the desire to obey God, is not legalism. The desire to obey is a work of grace within us. That's not legalism. And it's a fruit. Obedience is a fruit that's produced by abiding in Christ. So the desire to bear this fruit is not legalism. Legalism is a person who thinks that they're saved by upholding a system of rules and regulations that are are really according to their own convictions, which isn't what the Christian looks like at all. That doesn't describe Christianity at all. We don't believe that salvation is a reward for the righteous. We believe that it's a gift for the guilty. It's the legalist who insists that salvation is a reward for the righteous. Now, it's important that we see this. It's so important that we see this. Emphasizing obedience to Christ is not legalism. That's a common accusation that's thrown out by people who love lawlessness. 
Grace does not free us from the obligation or the importance of obedience. Rather, it gives us the desire to obey. I will put My Spirit within you and cause you to walk in My statutes, and you will be careful to observe My ordinances, is what God said about the new covenant in Ezekiel. So the first quality of Jesus' friends is that they love one another. The second quality of Jesus' friends is that they obey Jesus' commands. Third, they understand His teachings. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. Jesus says, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, But I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. Now the apostles, the disciples would go on to become the apostles and the apostles would always, always consider themselves to be servants of Christ. Yes, they were friends of Christ, but they would always consider themselves, see themselves as being first and foremost servants of Christ. Peter, for example, would refer to himself as a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ as he started his second epistle, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Paul would refer to himself frequently as a bondservant of Christ. The Greek word is doulos, which literally means a slave. He saw himself as a slave of Christ. See, natural man thinks of such words, servant or slave or whatever, as indicating a lowly position. But for the Christian, we see it as a title that designates a very, very high position. In fact, it is the highest position that man can have. But servanthood is what naturally flows out of being a friend of Jesus. What Jesus says here doesn't nullify or eradicate the nature of our relationship with Him as servants. After all, a few verses later in verse 20, Jesus is going to say, a slave is not greater than his master. He's referring to us. He's referring to to the disciples. If they persecuted me, He says, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But the relationship is the same. We're friends. Yes, but He is still the Master. And we are still the servants or slaves, depending on how you want to translate that Greek word. But what Jesus is saying here is that as His friends, He gives us understanding of His plans and purposes, which was unlike the, the earthly master-servant uh, you know, slave relationship. Uh, that's not how it worked with a, with a master and slave in, in His time. Uh, the, 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 the master would reveal all that he's doing and all that he desires to his servants. No, he'd just give the instructions as they went along. But that's not how it works with Jesus. Not with his friends. Remember that only Abraham, by the way, is described as being uh, God's friend in Scripture. That's the designation that he was given in James chapter 2, verse 23. But if you'll remember in our study of Genesis that we did years ago now, in the story of Abraham, uh, God at one point says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed? As God's friend, God wanted to reveal his plans and purposes to Abraham. 
And the same is true of us. That's what Jesus is saying here in this passage. When, when Jesus says that He has given understanding by revealing to His friends what He has heard from the Father. Now, when He says all things, when Jesus says that He has revealed all things to them, He, he doesn't mean that He's turned uh, His disciples into human calculators or you know, rocket scientists 2,000 years before their time. What He means by saying that He has taught them all things or revealed all things to them is that He has revealed to them all that they needed to know in order to be saved. That's what friends do. Friends share their thoughts. They share their ambitions. They share their intentions with one another. They talk about their plans. They talk about their goals. They talk about their desires, their likes and their dislikes. Friends reveal their will to one another. And this is exactly what Jesus does with us. When we read His Word, that's what Jesus is doing with us. When we listen to His Word being preached, that's what Jesus is doing with us. We have the Scriptures which contain His will and His purposes and His plans. And He sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to give us illumination to help us understand what His Word says. He's also given us other Christians to help us understand what His Word says. How many times... In your, in your walk with the Lord, how many times has there been a doctrine that you were struggling to understand until a brother or sister in Christ explained it to you in a way that all of a sudden it just clicked and it, it just suddenly made perfect sense? How many times have you read a book that gave you a better grasp of a doctrine or of, of Christian life in general? Now, of course, the Bible is the only book that we recognize as being inspired and infallible and inerrant. But the history of the church is really like a 2,000-year-long Bible study, all to help us understand and apply God's Word rightly, to help us understand His will and His purposes. But the point is that God's people, that those who are friends of Jesus, understand and believe what is necessary to understand and believe in order to be saved. To know and believe savingly in Christ is to know things that the world's greatest, most brilliant minds, yet unbelieving minds, are entirely ignorant of. Let's start with this. You know where the universe came from, just for starters. Now, if you were to go into a room filled with uh, people who were physicists with, with all kinds of letters after their names, all kinds of titles after their names, and scientists and philosophers, and ask them where did the universe come from, they would have no idea. And, and their ideas, the ideas that they do come up with for the origins of the universe, are ridiculous. They, they defy evidence. They defy reason entirely. But you do know where the universe came from. You do know the origins of the universe. You also know what happens after we die. Go ahead, ask a room full of scientists and philosophers what happens after we die. What do you think they're going to say? They'll have all kinds of ideas, all kinds of theories, but none of them will be able to say with absolute certainty that they know because they haven't experienced it. And their idea is, we know things by experience, and we can only know things by experience. 
But you do know. If you've read God's Word, if you are in Christ, if you know Christ, if you're a friend of Christ, you do know what happens after death. You also know what makes something morally right or morally wrong. Think about it. Scientists and philosophers, they've got all these theories about uh, you know, situational ethics and why it's morally wrong to do this or to do that. But their reasons are never objective. They're, they're always shifting. They're always changing. So they can never say that it's objectively right or objectively wrong to do this or that. But you, if you are in Christ and know His Word, you know what makes something morally right or morally wrong. God does. God, His nature, His character is what makes something Morally right or morally wrong. He is the absolute, objective, unchanging standard for what is morally right and wrong. And He records in His Word for us what is morally right and wrong. And what He says is in accordance with His nature, which is unchanging. So what the Bible says is right or wrong determines for us what's right or wrong. It's a moral compass for us. The greatest thing you know as friends of Jesus is what God did to reconcile sinful man to holy God. You know, if you are in Christ, you know that the Father sent His only Son, the Lord Jesus, to live a perfect, sinless life, to live up to His holy standards, and that His perfect sinlessness is imputed. That is, it's transferred or it's it's credited to all who believe savingly in Christ. And you know what God did about our sin. You, You know that when a person believes in Christ, their sin is removed from them and it is placed on Christ. And He dealt with it on Calvary. Ask a room filled with unbelieving scientists and philosophers what God did to reconcile man, fallen man, sinful man, to a holy God. And I guarantee you, if there were 10 million of them, not a single one of them would give you the right answer. Not a single one. Why not? Because the Gospel is the answer. And the Gospel to the natural man is foolishness. And this is just the tip of the iceberg, friends. Jesus' friends love one another. Jesus' friends walk in obedience to Him. They understand His teachings. And finally, fourth, they are chosen for the purpose of bearing good fruit. Jesus says in verse 16, You did not choose Me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in My name, He may give to you. Now the question becomes, who is you that He's using here? Who who does you refer to when Jesus says, you did not choose Me, but I chose you? Now the Arminian would say that this only refers to the disciples and that it only referred to the appointment of the disciples as Jesus' apostles. But does that really work? Here's the test. Here's the way we know if that really works. And that is to apply that same answer to all the other things that are being included in this passage in which Jesus is saying to you. So if we look at the fuller context, does it fit? We see that none of what Jesus has said in this entire passage only applies to the disciples. 
None of it. It applies to all of God's people throughout the ages. All of it does. So are the disciples the only ones whom Jesus calls His friends? No. Are they the only ones who are instructed to love one another? No. Are they the only ones who would understand His teachings? No, no, and and no, right? All of these things are common to all Christians throughout the ages. And when you consider the simplicity of what Jesus says here, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It is truly astounding that anyone would say, well, Jesus didn't choose me. I'm the one who chose him. Or or maybe they'll say something like this. They'll they'll get a little bit more philosophical. They'll say, um, I I don't think uh, God chose me just because of of his own will. Rather, what God did is he, he looked down the corridor of time and he saw that I would choose him. And so he chose me based on the fact that I would choose him. No, absolutely not. First of all, that would mean that God looked through the corridor of time and he had to learn something by looking down the corridor of time. And if God had to learn something, guess what? He changed. He went from not knowing something to knowing something, which means he changed. And if God had to change, if God learned something, it means he's not all knowing, which means he's not God. No, God did not look down some hypothetical, imaginary corridor of time to see that you would choose to believe. Further, Jesus plainly says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So no, God did not choose you in accordance with His knowledge that you would choose Him. No, no, pride makes this very difficult to understand, very difficult to accept. But God's Word is clear. He chose you according to His own purposes. He chose you according to the counsel of His own sovereign will. That's the only reason God does anything is according to the counsel of His own sovereign will. And why did God choose us? What purpose did God choose us for? The fourth and final characteristic of Jesus' friends here is that we're chosen for the purpose of bearing fruit. Jesus says, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. Now, go and bear fruit sounds a lot like the Great Commission, doesn't it? That's Great Commission language. The Great Commission is, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So Jesus has given all of His people throughout the ages the charge, indeed the privilege, of bearing good fruit through the preaching, through the proclamation of the Gospel. This will be fruit that remains. Because first of all, they'll remain because Jesus promises to keep them. And secondly, that will be fruit that remains because they will take the baton that we pass on to them and they will run the same race. They will run with the baton themselves. That is to say that they will also go and bear fruit that remains, which will bear fruit that remains, and so on and so forth. And this will be what the church does throughout this age until Christ returns. By the way, notice that this passage begins and ends with an emphasis on Christian love. Look at verse 17. This I command you, that you love one another. 
Everything that we do, friends, must be driven by love. Jesus' friends walk in obedience to Him. But what is obedience to Him if it isn't driven, if it isn't motivated by love? It's legalism. What is service unto Christ's people if it isn't motivated by love? It's just moralism and a false sense of self-righteousness and importance. What's evangelism without love? But winning arguments without a desire to win people and friends. And if we don't love one another, what would our prayers for one another look like? How would we bear one another's burdens as we're instructed? What is doctrine without love but mere facts that don't have any effect on our lives? Friends, the call of Christ is a call to love God and to love God's people. It's a call to friendship with Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Redeemer. We're to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling. To walk in obedience. Obedience that is motivated by love for Christ. And it's a call to know Him and to glorify Him and to love and serve one another to that end. Having friends is an important part of life. But there is no better friend than Jesus. And there is no friend that we need more than Jesus. Let's pray. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, thank You for Your Word, for the comfort that it brings us. Thank You for calling us friends. A title that we could never be worthy of. A title that we could never deserve. Yet a title that Your Son gives us. Teach us, O Lord, to see what a privilege that is. And to live our lives in light of our standing with You. Our relationship with You. Our friendship with You. Oh Lord, we pray that Christ would be glorified in our lives through our love for one another and through our service that's done for You. Teach us, O oh Lord, to do these things. Teach us, O oh Lord, to grow in these characteristics in order that Christ may be exalted in our lives. We pray, O oh Lord, that by the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we would abide in Christ. And we pray, we pray, O oh Lord, that He would abide in us according to Your will. In His name we pray. Amen.